Um, no. Okay. Uh, I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm just don't call me that. <laughs> Good job. I'm still, I'm still on the call. Can I call you back, please? We're on the call now. I know. I'll be leaving in a little bit. I just want you to be able to get a hold of Ammo. Okay. I can't now. After, please. How long you think? I don't know. <laughs> no. That's all I'm telling you. Okay, I'll call after you, sorry. Okay, sorry, you guys are... You know up. that's going in the show, right? <laughs> 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 that was an hilarious interruption during my interview with today's guest in this bonus episode of Radio Film School. Anad Warda, the director, writer, creator, and producer for the proposed sci-fi TV series Sky City Haya. With Star Wars Episode 7 coming out this month, I thought it would be good to keep the sci-fi theme alive and strong with this bonus episode of my entire interview with the Dodd and his producing partner, Tom Wyman. You may remember Tom as the filmmaker who had that great Wizard of Oz story about how he and his family growing up didn't have a color TV, so they never knew that the Wizard of Oz ever turned to color until later on when they saw it, um, once they finally did get a color TV. If you haven't already, check out that episode. It's the Wizard of Oz Thanksgiving Day Special. Because Radio Film School is a documentary series, you will rarely hear the entire interview I have with my guests. I just use excerpts from each interview, pulling sound bites appropriate for the topic in any given week. So periodically, I'll make full, uncut interviews available for email subscribers and premium members. I think you'll love this interview as we cover issues like sci-fi stereotypes, world building, racial variety, their strategy to make a promo video about the series as a way to find investors to actually make the entire show, what makes a good sci-fi series, lessons learned from mishaps during production, and running a Kickstarter campaign. Remember, you can check all regular episodes of the show on iTunes and Stitcher. You can follow me on Twitter at FM, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash radiofilmschool. Alright, without further ado, I'll start us with a quick clip from Adad's Kickstarter video, then go right into my full uncut interview with Adad and Tom about the making of Sky City Haya. Enjoy. My name is Adad Warda. I'm the writer and director of the project entitled Sky City Haya, a science fiction mystery series. Imagine a multicultural world full of all sorts of people from different backgrounds speaking different languages. It takes place on a floating city above Earth. The world in the future is going to be a melting pot of different cultures. You felt like you were traveling all over the world. The characters were so versatile that it really made you feel like you were traveling to see them, but it was actually them gathering in Sky City Haya. And the multiculturalism, you know, I have to put my hand into that and very few sci-fi movies that actually do something like this a world where we help secure our future we fought together against this place he said that we would make a difference Haya is the safest fucking city in the world seen a lot more than you know okay so we're on with Adad. Adad Adad how do you pronounce your last name Warda right Warda yeah Warda and Tom Wineland you got it uh the director and the producers and director of Sky City Haya um which is looks like quite a production that you guys had there and I think there are a couple of reasons why I thought it would be good to talk to you guys because, um, one, you know, just the kind of film it is, um, or that you want it to be, actually. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's more like a series, I guess. Um, and Tell then, series, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, the idea of, um, you know, this is the process you went through, you know, with the Kickstarter. You know, Dodd, mm-hmm. you had written, you know, a guest post on Daredevil Magazine for it. Um, that's correct um, and you know it looks like a lot went to it so you know just you know give us sort of like the the reader's digest version of um, of your marathon blog post that you did sure that that goes into like how you came up with the concept and the idea for it you know first kind of tell us like what it is like what is it about and then how you came up for it 
Sure, I can do that. So uh, Sky City Haya is a science fiction mystery TV series concept. Uh, it takes place 200 years in the future um, when global warming has melted all the polar ice caps and driving the ocean's uh, levels up so high that basically all major coastlines are uh, underwater. Uh, so all major cities are lost. And uh, there's been a lot of relocation. The geopolitical map has shifted. New countries exist. Old ones are gone. And um, there's a whole class of refugees worldwide whose country no longer exists. They're called denationalized refugees. All right. And, Hold on. Let me stop you right yeah. there. Sure. I, uh, I may stop you from time to time. Sure, um, please. So uh, because I know if, if I let you keep going on and on, I'm going to have like 10 questions built up. I'm not going to remember them all. Um, <laughs> So the first question is, why a worldwide flood? Like, like haven't we kind of like, like Waterworld comes to mind? You know, movie that sure. came out I don't know how many years ago with Kevin Costner. Um, so wh- one, why a wide world flood, and why post-apocalyptic? Like, did you have concerns about it being like too too tropish? You know, too stereotypical. Um, well, it's good you mentioned that. Um, I specifically think that, well, let's put it this way. I'm using a, a, a familiar idea, but I want to, I feel, explore it in a more realistic way. Uh, so I'm not concerned that I'm using an old uh, and used uh, science fiction trope uh, because even though on the surface it looks like it's another uh, post-apocalyptic movie, the whole world is destroyed except for this one place, that's actually what I'm trying to avoid is a simplistic black and white approach where uh, there's just a few different options of, of how people are living because I think that humans have a more interactive, more intricate, more nuanced uh, reality and a lot of times these kind of films or books uh, paint it with a very broad brush. So I actually want to explore the fact that there's still humans on Earth. Most of them are still there. Some places are bad. Some are good. Uh, it's a bit of a chaotic world, but they've gotten somewhat used to it. Mm-hmm. And this city just happens to be uh, the largest corporation's answer to how are we going to solve shrinking land and still increasing population for these refugees. So, so I want to. When you say there's still like refugees on Earth, like on the on the on the land, the planet, is that what you mean? Yeah, everyone's okay. still down there. Ninety nine point nine percent of the population. There's only about five hundred thousand people in the city, so it's a it. it's a it's a beta test. Got it. And this, and in the context of the story, this is the only Sky City. Currently, yes, but uh, uh, the subplot is they're leading up to a big vote on whether or not they're going to build uh, half a dozen others. Got it. Okay. Are they going to use Kickstarter to build those other cities? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be very interesting. Hi, I'm building a city in the sky. Want to fund my construction? <laughs> right. No, I'm going to use Indiegogo this time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, we will get to that later because I do have questions of that. But I've had I had Brett Cope on, um, talking about his uh, he did for his film Legends of the Night, and uh, he had. Use he had done both Indiegogo and Kickstarter, but both okay, um, yeah, not simultaneously. He did like I think he started with Indiegogo and then a year later he did Kickstarter. Interesting, um, okay. but uh, so, anyway, so go back to your story. So, Sky City Haya, it's an apocalyptic future, most of the people live on the ground. Um, um, the, the a select few live in the city, yes. Uh, okay. the city was originally built, uh to house the denationalized refugees of the world. And when it was first built, nobody really deemed it to be something safe and acceptable. It wasn't a tried and true concept. So um, the refugees uh, were selected to come. I mean, some refugees were selected to come and live and work there. Uh, but then after a few years, it became very popular. Uh, in, in some sense, uh, you could say Dubai is a, sort of a modern-day example um, mm. where you have all the Indians, Pakistanis, Indonesians, Filipinos coming over for manual labor and the Westerners and the Arabs doing all the higher jobs. In that sense, uh, what Haya became after 20 years that it's been uh, existed now is a place where the rich and well-connected uh, have good jobs and are living there with their families. And the refugees over 20 years were relegated to a labor class uh, to maintain, upkeep, and construct uh, this this ever-growing city. Okay, very very interesting. Um, so. 
So one other trope that could come to mind is mm-hmm. the idea, and and Blanc, Blanc, can never pronounce his name, Blomkamp? Blomkamp, yeah. Yeah, um, Blomkamp, yeah. You know, it, with Elysium explored this last year, you know, That's the true. movie with uh, Jodie Foster and Matt Damon. Yes. Um, you know, the idea that Elysium was the space station and was the space mm-hmm. station where the rich and wealthy and powerful live and then the dregs of the earth were left on earth. Right. Um, does does Hyatt go in that territory also? And, you know, how do you um, how do you approach that topic? Well, uh, Elysium was very directly political, um, although mine has a lot of uh, politically motivated themes. Uh, the stories are about individual characters and their struggles within the context of the greater mystery. So I, I like to uh, deliver a message in an indirect way, first entertain, and then through that indirectly as an ancillary benefit, you know, have a, a strong political or social message. I think Elysium uh, hit the hammer too hard with that strong political message. And I also think that they also did the same thing that many other post-apocalyptic science fiction films doers. They made it like the entire Earth is all basically what? Um, uh, uh, poor tenements in Mexico. Right. Or, or favelas in, in Brazil. That's what it looked like. It, once again, it was too simplistic for my taste. Got it, got it. Um, so one of the things I want to ask you, Adad, and you know, Tom, you can chime in too, is, is yeah. this idea of comparison and this idea of developing and finding your own voice. Because these are the topics that we are exploring in you know, the season on the show. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was asking you about the common tropes. And, and the truth is, there's rarely anything that's new under the sun. I mean, so it's it's not at all a, a critique of what you guys are doing. Um, but knowing that you did, you know, as the visionary, have a particular purpose and vision with what you're doing with this particular trope, um, yeah. you know, I wanted to ask you and kind of talk to you about, you know, your thoughts and processes towards approaching what is a common trope and the intentional decisions you made in the story and the casting uh, and the production to make it same but different. Does that make sense? Okay. It does, yeah. Um, story-wise, what comes to mind is I also don't like it when many science fiction or post-apocalyptic movies have a little title crawl that explains everything and then you jump into the story. I feel like it's a cheat. Although I do have to say my one exception is Star Wars. I happen to like the way that one was done. Um, But most of the time they just have this little text that comes up. Blade Runner has it. Elysium had it. A lot of them have it. Um, And uh, in mine, I actually want to make the show intro, the series show intro, uh, a political ad by the city to convince the people to vote yes on the initiative to build more cities. And within that, it obviously uh, has a general overview of recent human history and how they, with the city, have saved humanity. And that will become uh, uh, your backstory. But I like the fact that it's within the context of the story itself. It's not an extra story, I don't know what you would call it, text that is meant to lead you in and simplify the introduction to it. So. I didn't want to do that uh, by adding a little text introduction. I wanted to find a way to introduce it in a way that would be realistic within the story, within the world. I, uh, I, I, I like that. So it, it sounds like what you did, and correct me if I'm wrong, then, mm-hmm. is you saw, you know, you, you have this, you know, this common trope. You, you saw these elements of the trope that are very common that, and you said, okay, how can we take the same execution of exposition because that's essentially (laughs) what they are right it's exposition how can we take the execution of exposition the past you know the way they did in the past with a title crawl or you know a white on black text whatever sure how can we take that exposition concept and turn it on its head and you know how can we come up with an idea to provide an exposition in a way that's more creative um what was that like an initial like, did you know right away that's how you wanted to do it, or was it, or was it more like you knew you wanted to do something different, but you kind of played around with different ideas? Like, what was your process in coming up with that creative, original, um, expositional intro? 
Uh, I don't remember if that was uh, an older original idea I had or if it was newer. I feel like it just came up organically, so I can't remember exactly. But my intention with this whole project, I feel not not consciously, although now I'm conscious of it, has been to to say to people, I'm a science fiction fan, but. I'm also a critic of a lot of science fiction films and television series because they don't live up to what my expectations are about what I think the best of science fiction can be. Mm-hmm. So within that, that context, everything that I'm doing, uh, not everything, but a lot of the things I'm doing are trying to find what I feel is an improved way to make people watch something that feels so familiar as if it could be happening today but it's in this future world and we can relate to people through human endeavors and fear and pain and jealousy and love uh, within this grand world setting but I want it to be something that people can watch and not feel like well that's far away in that universe in the future I want them to feel like it's immediate and it's believable so that it has this hard gritty reality to it kind of like what let's say Christopher Nolan did with the Batman series where he made it less comic book and more, hey, this is just uh, some vigilante that's rich and has access to equipment. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got and, it. And, and also making all of these individual uh, uh, episodes be very story-driven and centered around uh, a, a few of the characters. And then they will also will tie into the, the master, uh, master plot of the overall series. Right. So they will add to it as you as you, as you each episode, as you see it, then this is an underlying plot line that's going to be uh, taking place, and these characters will support that in some way. So, yes. Um, so one series that comes to mind that you know did this um, pretty well, pretty well through um, you know through most of its six-year run uh, was Lost, right? Where right. you had you know a series of different characters, and they all had different backgrounds, and you know each episode's you know, it could be a different, uh, different character's background. Sure. You know, is it similar? Is it, is it similar to that where you have these different characters and maybe each episode explore, will explore that particular character? Um, like how are you envisioning the characters stories being presented in the series? Uh, that's a good question. Um, it's much more extreme than that. Uh, Lost did that. Other shows have done it to a larger or lesser degree, but it's still an ensemble cast. Mm-hmm. Um, my se- series, uh, which at least at this point would be a kind of a mini-series or a one-season one series for, to start off with, uh, isn't an ensemble in the traditional sense mm-hmm. where you have a main focus and then there's also secondary characters that are reoccurring. Um, in this particular series, uh, the one unifying character over the entire series is this Adrian Rousseau, the guy in the teaser who is, you know, um, giving the big speech. Mm-hmm. He is uh, the connecting thread because uh, the story is about him, uh, a conspiracy that he uncovers, and what ultimately happens to him that, that we're trying to kind of solve without giving too much away. And so he's in every episode. Yet none of the episodes are ever told from his point of view. They're always told from another character's point of view uh, whose story arc we are, we are writing, we are watching, we are observing. Um, and there's a completely different main character for each episode. And you will not see, as far as I have it now, I don't know if I will change that, mm-hmm. you will not see any of the other main characters from any of the other episodes within uh, the other episodes, I'm getting too complicated. <laughs> yeah. Also, I would like to add in that, uh, you know, Lost, uh, you know, through the writers, I've read a, a fair amount about it, and my understanding is they they didn't really have an end goal. They never, you know, they kind of made it up as they got lost along the way is the way I think of it. Um, and then they just, you know, came up with that sort of ending, which was not very satisfying for the majority of people that followed the series. Um, so in our in our uh, projects, we are we are going to have those laid out ahead of time, you know, oh, yeah. sort of series bible that we call it, mm-hmm. you know. So we'll we'll have that all plotted out so that every episode will support the the greater whole of the overall series. Yeah, and and and, and the Tom is right. We I already have the uh, the whole story arc uh, set in stone. Uh, the the details aren't filled in yet, but I know uh, where it's going, and and I know most of the details about how it's going to uh, conclude. 
um, so real quick, first, you know, first thing that comes to your mind, how does it end? <laughs> We're not going to tell you that. Uh, I, 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 can, I can answer it indirectly. It'll end uh, where you'll know what happened, but, you, uh, but it won't necessarily be a clean-cut, happy ending. Okay. Um, I was just joking. Um, I, I was intrigued what you said about each episode – you know, surrounding the Adrian Rousseau, but it won't be from his point of view. It will be from the point of view of the other characters. Is it like, will those points of view be sort of like first person point of view? Like we're hearing their thoughts or more like third point of view, third person where those characters are the main character for that episode, but it's still from a third person point of view perspective. Does that, dis- does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, I I haven't quite nailed that down yet because I've been playing with both sides. I have the first episode figured out, uh, but um, um, I'm I'm wondering uh, how in the head of each character we want to be, whether we actually want to hear their thoughts, kind of like if you've been watching Mr. Robot, uh, a new series on recently, it's it's all in his thoughts. And he actually is speaking to us, the audience, as if we are his made up imaginary friend, but we actually exist. Mm-hmm. I like that, 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 that theme. And I also find that it really pulls people in, yeah. but I haven't decided whether or not it's going to be like that because originally I thought, you know what, let's make it like that because I want to make it similar to a good old fashioned film noir detective story where you hear the character's thoughts. Yeah. Um, but um, but I'm not sure yet, so yeah. I'm, I'm still playing with that. Well, I mean, you know, just uh, that one of the criticisms of uh, the theatrical release of Blade Runner was right. was yeah. you know the voiceover by Harrison Ford that was added later. So right. uh, I'm sure you've thought about things like that. Um, and I, I can say that uh, Tom has been a, a great. Uh, constructive uh, critic uh, because he's always helping me to try to find a way to make it more original, more fresh, more interesting. Uh, Tom is a huge science fiction fan, bigger than me, bigger than anyone I know. He has a zillion toys and figures and Star Trek and Star Wars and ships and he's been following this stuff for years and he's always challenging me to make it as unique and as fresh as possible. So it's great to have that kind of partnership. Um, So Tom, being a a huge sci-fi fan, what... um because you you came in later, like Adad, kind of like brought you in after. You well, I can give you a little backstory on uh, on how we met and everything. Adad yeah. was, I think, sixteen or seventeen. And he actually interned at our production studios here in That's San right. Francisco. Oh, okay. Yep. So yeah, yeah, so we go way back. What's the name back. of those studios? What's the name of that company? Uh, Picks and Stones. Picks and Stones. Got it. Okay. Yeah, Picks and Stones. Um, it pretty much have like you know uh, that kind of is not really i mean we're still doing it but we're not doing as much stuff i'm i'm focused on primary uh focused on sky city Haya and and working on that so i'm not doing a lot of my projects that i normally would do with picks and stones so are you like independently wealthy or something like no um, <laughs> i bought it the right i bought it the right time and i have like a a beautiful two condo house in the castro okay <laughs> So yeah. filled, filled with all retro television sets, radios, uh, spaceships, <laughs> guns, everything. It's, it's the most awesome place you've ever seen. Yeah, so I've, uh, I've uh, you know, known Adad for a long, long time. And uh, I guess about nine or ten years ago, he started working on Sky City Haya when he was at San Francisco State. Wow. And so that's, yeah, so, that's, so it's been around for a while. And he's been working on the stories and writing all the time. And yep. then... Uh, he interned with us, and then he became a graphic artist and also producer and director um, and did a bunch of uh, video projects with us. And then eventually he moved to Prague, and he's been working over there ever since. But we work on projects together even to this day on yep. corporate stuff, TV commercials, and things like that. Yeah, Tom was my mentor into uh, turning from a high school film-loving student to becoming a professional. So, so big influence. Um, so... Tom, then you saw him, you know, you know, working working on the story over the years. Yes. How did the formal uh, introdu- not introduction, but how did the formal um, how did you formally become involved? Like, did he pitch it to you? Would, did he say, "Hey, remember that thing I was working on? I'm doing it now." <laughs> you know, how did that? You know, how did that all go down? Um, well, we over the years have been uh, discussing it, and um, you know, he just was, you know. Uh, working on other projects but then he was always working on sky city Haya, and so i would ask him about it and i guess a couple years ago it was starting to get really serious 
Mm. And he started sending me uh, scripts and stuff. And I said, well, this, this is really interested. I'm really into this. And I think it could be, you know, either a, at that time, I thought it might be a movie. Mm-hmm. But then as we discussed it, we felt that it would make much more sense to make it into a TV series. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so that's where it sort of progressed. And then ongoing, I went over for the filming of, uh, of the various uh, uh, trailer pieces that we've put together so far. I went over for about three, three weeks, and we shot in Prague last year in August. Yeah, Tom, Tom came over and helped us produce the, the whole shoot. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I lent my my expertise to uh, come in and help out on that, and it was a great crew that we worked with, and uh, everybody very enthusiastic and giving you know all their all, and uh, it, it turned out really great. We did a lot of green screen stuff. We did a wide range of stuff, which Adad and I both have done so much because we worked on. I probably have. A little bit about my background. I started out as an online editor. I've probably edited over thousands of shows. Right. So, you know, I've got, you know, deep knowledge in, in especially editing. And then I went into producing, directing, and, you know, pretty much have done everything that you can do on a, on a production. So uh, from the beginning to script writing all the way to the end to editing and then, you know, distribution. So, um yeah, so I mean, so we just uh, we just decided. I decided I'm going to stop doing a lot of my regular projects, which I don't really need to do so much anymore, and just focus all my energies on Sky City Higher. Got it. What is it? Are you in the process of making this, Tom? Is there, you know, you being such a fan of sci-fi? Mm-hmm. What? I guess what I'm, I'm trying to find the words here. Like, what were you looking for in the process of it in order to make sure that Sky City High would be or will be like a great, you know, sci-fi piece? Like, like in your in your own words, what? Ma- I guess what I'm asking mm-hmm. in your words, what makes a great sci-fi? Um, I think first off, it's storytelling. And characters. I think those are the two main things. If you get great characters telling a great story, you're you're gonna have like one of my one of my all time favorite uh, sci fi series was out of the '60s, and it was called Outer Limits. Oh yeah, and sort of yeah, like a, it was kind it, of similar to uh, Twilight Zone. Yeah, yeah, very similar to Twilight. I like Twilight Zone as well, but I was more engaged in uh, Outer Limits. Uh, I, I, I liked how they added in a certain monster of the week, which was kind of interesting. And um, but also the storytelling was great, and also the actors they got in the series were amazing. So uh, and it was all shot in black and white, uh, which I actually kind of liked that, you know. And then when they did the reboot of it in color and stuff, I wasn't really into it. I didn't really get into it. Mm-hmm. Another uh, 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 sci-fi series that I really liked. Uh, was in the eighties, which was uh, Friday the Thirteenth. That was I, a sci-fi series. Well, it was a it was it was kind of sci-fi horror, I guess. More. Are you talking about, are you talking about the movies or the right? No, no, not the movies, oh. but the actual TV series. Oh, I didn't know there was one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was a TV series. <laughs> See, he knows everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it was basically you know there was all these uh, demonized objects and you know uh, every episode dealt with a demonized object that these curators had to get back and put in this special vault so that it wouldn't cause you know people getting killed and all that kind of different stuff whatever the demon object you know possessed would would do you know so it's a, it's a, actually it's a great it's it's well written it was i think most of it was shot up in vancouver um it's it's really it's not even it doesn't even really pertain to the friday the 13th of movies it actually doesn't have anything I, I don't think to do with it really, except for the title. So that that's another really great one, and and then more of the sci-fi genre. I really enjoyed, and to this day, I think it still holds up quite well. Is Babylon's Five, mm. and so that's another one. And they created that series uh, using Amigas to create most of their graphics. Which uh, Amiga was a computer system back in the eighties. Um, that you could do really cool graphics with. So, um, and actually, I knew somebody that worked on that series, um, and um, they used Amigas on it and stuff like that. So, 
Yeah, so I mean, um, getting back to your overall question, I think it's it's story and character that will that drives them. One thing I really uh, have have gotten really kind of despondent about science fiction um, movies and stuff is that they they seem to all be about this, uh, you know, blow up scenes and explosions and. It always ends in a giant finale of the good guys winning out over the bad guys, you know, in a very simplistic way. And I, I, I get why Hollywood is doing that because they're more focused on the tentpole pictures. Right. And then if they can get, you know, people involved in a particular character like the Marvel characters. And I'm not saying they don't do some of these well, but they just seem overly simplistic and it's it's not so much about the story it's more about like we can show off some crazy effects and blow things up and stuff like that um so i'm i'm hoping that this series we can present a fresher look and get more involved in in the storytelling aspect of it and, you know in a way similar to what they're doing with i think true detective that tv yeah. series yeah. so i think that 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 is kind of you know kind of our benchmark or gold standard um to doing this and also the new series that's on usa that adad mentioned which i've seen three of the episodes i think the fourth one comes out today which is mr robot and i think they're doing some interesting things with that series as well so so storytelling characters are going to obviously you know play you know a huge part and and, you know i would agree you know wholeheartedly with what you're saying because i mean i think at the end of the day really good sci-fi is actually not about the sci-fi if you know right. what I mean right like exactly really good sci-fi is about like you said the story and the characters and a good sci-fi story is um if it's done well it could transition to a western could transition to a rom-com or you know whatnot it's and the sci-fi elements are really just sort of like the uh I won't say the icing on the cake, but it's this is the context of telling you know, this better story, and I mean I think that's why so many, a lot of people don't, like don't connect emotionally to the sort of big blockbuster bang up type of tentpole production you were talking about, Tom. Mm-hmm. The ones that aren't done well, I actually think yeah. Marvel does for the most part do them well, but obviously there's others that from a story perspective, don't do them well, you know, and, but there isn't that kind of connection to character or story, like you said, and it really is about the effects or the, um, uh, really, I guess, I don't know, the effects and the, and the sci-fi and not the, it's, the a, it's about the visuals and giving the wow factor and yeah. making the seem epic and exciting. But one of the main reasons we want to do it as a TV series is a TV series is kind of like a book. You read each chapter. It focuses on character people. When they're watching a TV series, they're in the comfort of their own home, in front of their computer, in front of their television. And they are still entertained by a very character-driven story. I mean, look at Game of Thrones, one of the biggest, most epic blockbuster style TV series but it's so character driven there's long scenes of talking and exposition and people are cool with that but if they put that in the cinemas I don't think so mm-hmm. yeah it's funny you mentioned Game of Thrones because I was thinking about the Game of Thrones book the series mm-hmm. of books by George R.R. R. Martin when you were talking about uh, how each episode of Sky City High is going to focus around one particular point of view because that's how the books for game of thrones are written where it's you know in each book you know each chapter is like a different point a different character's point of view right and you know there are some characters um you know there's some chapters where we never see the point of view of one character and i think there's some characters where we never where they never have a point of view chapter Um, so that that really came to mind when you were talking I mean that's the first thing that came to mind when you talked about how Sky City Haya was going to be um, in, in your words Adad what makes for a good sci-fi would you just echo what Tom said is there anything else you would add I would I would add that the a sci-fi or fantasy has the extra added responsibility of trying to create a believable, nuanced, detailed world. Ah. And that's very difficult because you have to figure out the rules so you know what the characters can and can't do and what makes a maverick in that world because you have to know the established, you know. So one of the interesting things for me to create Sky City High is to become a an imaginary 
cultural anthropologists. You know, how do people uh, live? What do they eat? How do they pay for things? How do they get around? What do they think of themselves and the rest of the world? What do they believe in as far as politics goes? So that you have to learn about all the daily rituals and daily life uh, and all the details about how the city works. And I think that's one of the main characters is the city itself. Um, not the, wow, it's up in the sky and it's floating and things are flying around, but what do people do every day? Do they eat you know, different food? Do they call on phones? Uh, what's, what's, what's an annoying thing that happens all the time? For example, uh, if you're a newcomer to the city, you often get sky sickness. Uh, each island obviously is as stationary as possible using computers and, and uh, different jet packs or whatever they call them, little ways to keep it steady. I forget what they call them on like the, the shuttles in space where they have a little... Hovercraft. Ch- yeah, well, I mean, they're not, they're not yeah, hovercraft. I mean, anyway, the yeah. technology doesn't matter, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, they, 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 they keep them as stationary as possible, but obviously they're not buoyed or connected to anything, you know, on land or by a pole. They're floating up in the sky, so they move slightly throughout the day. And if you have just come to the city for the first time, you might get queasy, you might throw up because you're not used to that subtle movement that doesn't exist on land. So these kind of details are, I think, what makes it believable and real. And then add to that a compelling story which is based on human principles and love and loss and desire and jealousy and pain, then it becomes real. And you're right. I think I completely agree with you. The best science fiction or fantasy is when the wow factor is the icing on the cake, not the cake itself. Yeah. Um, I love what you said about details because I was actually just going to make that point based on how you were describing it, that – you know, when you think about, you know, I think about like the behind the scenes of Lord of the Rings and the attention to detail that Weta played in, um, you know, the designs of the swords and the armor. And, you know, going back to the original author himself, J.J.R. Tolkien, how yeah. he created whole languages and, and details yeah. and backstory and whatnot. And, you know, that really comes to mind. That really came to mind, you know, when you were talking about Skycia, and I love the, I love that touch about how the cities, how you get sky sickness when you first arrive. Like, like you don't. That's the kind of thing you don't even think about. Like you think about Empire or Return of the Jedi, and they, you know, and they go to Bespin, and it's a city in the sky, and that kind of thing. It's just never even brought up. But like that is a little detail that does give it that sense of believability i really love that yeah and i think a tv series allows for that kind of extra information uh, because people have more patience and they can pause and play it so you get the opportunity to put that in there and people are willing to accept it and watch it enjoy it and you're right a movie which is an hour and a half two hours maybe two and a half hours tops doesn't have the time to get into all those details because they have a plot to finish within a certain amount of time um and and you could also speak you know you could also speak to the the language that we've been working on and creating for Sky City. Sure, sure. Um, English is uh, the main language. Chinese, obviously, is one of the other uh, big ones because China will have a big role to play. Russia, not so much because given how the the topographical map of the Earth is and how much water comes up, a lot of it's inundated. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the power, whoever's the most powerful, is based on who has the most land. Uh, But English is written phonetically. Uh, very phonetically, kind of like the way Spanish is, so the spelling will look funny to us, kind of like when you've read Huck Finn. You know, it's it's written funny, but if you actually pronounce it out loud, you can understand what it's right. saying. So that's to simplify the language, because currently now in the world, English is based on uh, the spelling is based on old pronunciations, but you know, the pronunciations have changed, but the actual grammar, the spelling hasn't changed. So English is written more phonetically, and then we're trying to come up with different phrases that uh, reflect. Uh, uh, a more uh, futuristic uh, point of view, a different culture of people, because the city is very multicultural. So there's obviously people from all over mixing together, kind of like back when the U.S. first started, and it's not hasn't uh, isn't cohesive yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, for example, I don't know. There's um, there's a term in Portuguese called saudade, uh, which means something like uh, uh, um, something like nostalgia. Uh, you love great times in the past that you can't reclaim again. It's not exactly nostalgia, but it's similar. And I thought that maybe these refugees, denationalized refugees, which uh, are called dead reds, uh, kind of as a street term, mm-hmm. um, uh, one of the words only refugees who live on Haya will use to describe 
good times they've actually had in refugee camps prior to coming to Haya. They would call it Saudi based on Saudaj. And that would be a very special thing because growing up in a refugee camp probably doesn't provide for a lot of great memories and wonderful times. And uh, they believe that being on the city is such a privilege. Uh, but the real, if you could be happy while growing up in a refugee camp and actually find positivity in that, that's really respectable and they have a word for that. So stuff like this to create a world which has its own catchphrases like may the force be with you and stuff, but not in a fantastical sense, in a, as much as possible, something that reflects our reality today on earth. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to turn the discussion a little bit towards the actual, like, production that you guys did of you know of the promo and you know kind of share you know some of the war stories of (laughs) (laughs) as time bells allowed guffaw okay uh, of putting this project together uh you know what comes to mind i mean the way tom responded I, I, i feel like there's probably one or two that comes to mind so i guess you know what comes to mind and and what did you learn from from some of those uh, anecdotes. Uh, okay, well, I'm going to give you the most dramatic one, which is not actually part of the production itself. It's part of the post-production. Oh, okay. uh, uh, I contacted, uh, I got in touch with somebody who me and Tom spoke with over uh, Skype while I was back in San Francisco last year. Um, we were trying to find a team for special effects, and several people responded to our Craigslist ad, and one of them uh, was a guy from Los Angeles who had a team and ended up hiring him to, to work with him, uh, uh, only later to find out that he was kind of a, a scam artist. Oh. Uh, I think he kind of worked in film and No, he video. was a scam artist. <laughs> well, but he, yeah, he was a scam artist and uh, uh, paid a thousand bucks, uh, and he wanted me to pay more and uh, gave me models of buildings that he had claimed that he and his team had modeled and wanted an extra 1500 and I wanted to kind of cut it off with him because the communication was becoming really tenuous. And then uh, the new team here in Prague said, oh, we recognize those buildings. That's part of a free package on Video Copilot. He's trying to charge you for uh, a free package they give you to download. Oh, uh, you. And I was like, okay, that's done. Uh, and then subsequently I found out a lot more stuff about him uh, through uh, various people I've talked to. It's one of the more unusual uh, experiences in my life. But I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. And so what did you learn from that? I learned from that that uh, working with people that you know, working with people that uh, – uh, through people – working with someone you haven't worked with before but you have a, a mutual friend or a connection that, that can vet them and can, can cor- corroborate their you know, professionalism and, and their reliability is very important. And also working with people that are physically with you in the same city so you can actually meet them in person and have that – you know. A personal connection instead of just doing it remotely, me from Prague, him from Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very important. Um, and um, you got to be smart about who you're working with and, and you have to um, uh, read warning signs uh, quickly, especially when you have uh, you know minimal funding and you don't want to waste time or money. Yeah. So um, I will be much more cautious in the future. Yeah, yeah. Um, how about the protection itself? Sure. What kind of uh, war stories come to mind? Well, uh, yeah, go ahead, you want, I, could, I could give one. It wasn't really – well, I don't know if it's necessarily a war story, but there was a – when I arrived in Prague, we, we realized when Adad was going through the crew list that uh, um, we had a limited budget to work with. And so since I had done professional audio for a number yeah. of years, mm-hmm. and I'd actually started out with Francis Ford Coppola. I actually did some work on Apocalypse Now. Oh, cool. So, um, yeah, I got to work on the, with the um, audio team and do uh, sound effects and stuff, you know, up at his uh, – uh, it's a winery now. But back then, it was just starting to become a winery up on Nibom Lane up near Napa. And uh, so I was still in college, uh, but I had, I had been really focused on learning how to do audio. And so I was contacted, so I got to work on uh, as a secondary uh, – audio tech and also help record a lot of sound effects and stuff for that film um which was a great experience and francis ford coppola was the most giving and and nice person uh that you know i can say nothing bad about him at all he was really wonderful to he would come on set and he would tell us some things and then we would just do what we needed to do well obviously we were doing most of the post sound and stuff but he still wanted the authenticity so he made us all dress up in these uh the uh, the actual uniforms and stuff of the characters that were in the film, 
So if we were out stomping around into the mud to get that sort of effect sound, he wanted us, if there was a belt jingle or any kind of thing like that. So it was very, very detail-focused. And I learned a lot from that. I learned from really great professionals on how to get really good location sound. So going back to Sky City Hyatt, when I arrived, the dad said, well, we don't really have in the budget for a, you know, a professional sound person. So even though I was working as a producer on this, he said, could you step into the role of being the sounds person? And since I had done it over the years and stuff, uh, I hadn't done it recently, but uh, I said, okay, yeah, I'll jump in. I can, I can still, you know, produce and also, you know, do location sound for you. So I ended up doing the location sound on, on the trailer stuff last year. So, yeah, that to me, like, really speaks to... Uh, you know, uh, as a producer and a leader on the project, being willing to get your hands dirty, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, you often hear about crew members being willing, you know, obviously this is different on a union set where there's rules and regulations as to what you can and can't do, but on, you know, like a non-union shoot where it is a low budget and the crew is small, everyone chipping in regardless of which hat you normally wear. Exactly. Was that something that you guys saw throughout the whole crew? Like, were there other examples of that kind of um, uh, leadership? Sure, yeah. My my colleague, Jan Greger, who I've worked with for the last seven years here, kind of had two hats. He was both the location manager as well as the assistant director, which was a little difficult at times because he had to bounce back and forth um, and, uh, you know, fill those two hats, which uh, limited his ability to do uh, each one all the way. So he was, you know, I had I had a couple of um, arguments with him and, and the DP because the DP always wanted more time to get it just right. And he was saying, <laughs> we have a promise to end at a certain time here. And we've discussed it with them and we're not giving, we're not paying them. And so I would be kind of like, I feel like, um, like a, a, a tug of, what is it called? That game where you pull the rope? Tug of war. Uh, tug of war. <laughs> and I was the rope in the middle being yanked because if I said, hey, listen, Tim, uh, 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 Jan is saying we got to finish and we got to respect our promise to them, he would say, well, I can't work like this. I need the time. And if I would say, hey, uh, Jan, uh, Tim needs the time. Let's make it right. He's like, no, 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 no. We promise. Don't. Let's not be unprofessional. And there was no way to make either one of them, both of them happy at the same time. So I just kind of stuck it out, tried to communicate, tried to keep it cool. And we ended up getting through it but it was you know it was frustrating sometimes so and I, I used to just to go on that point a couple times i took jan aside and i said and we would we would go talk to the powers of be because it was like locations that you know if you talk to them they would like you know extend our time a little bit so yes. what i did was uh i would say to dodd and the dp continue doing what you're doing jan and i are going to go over here and chat with the guy so we could I, I saw an opportunity to buy a little bit of more time, and also that gave a break between Adad and Jan going at it back and forth because uh, <laughs> Jan was very much wanting to stay totally on schedule. He's he's Czech, and in Czech they they're very rigid about time. I guess uh-huh. so. It's kind of like, and it's also like when you're dealing with a crew, the most important thing is cohesion. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, people that are willing to work together and and. Even though they know they have an idea about something, it's just working out a way to uh, disseminate the, the information through the whole crew. But also, ultimately, it's the producer and the director that have final call. And, but, but, you know, the way we work is we like to take in feedback from everybody, but there's a time and place for it. And, you know, we worked out a way of being able to do that. And these are all new people to me. The mm-hmm. only person I really knew was a Dodd on this overall crew, and it was a crew that was from everywhere. There was people from London, there were people from all over the place. So it was really kind of a multicultural crew as well as being a multicultural cast, and that's what we really want to stress. And I hope down the road, when we actually do create this series, that we're able to to continue in that that way to have this multicultural cast and and what well, we will have a multicultural cast but also a multicultural crew because i think that just makes things much, for me it makes it much more interesting in a work environment but also much more you get a lot of different perspectives on how to do things and oh I'm yeah like, different, different ideas much richer the diversity of ideas than if everyone were from the same country right right um you uh, now this has come up 
kind of uh, on the surface, but you know, I want to you know address the idea that what you guys are doing or what you did with your Kickstarter is to create this series, the a promote a promo video for the series. So you actually haven't shot the series yet, right? That's correct. Uh, yeah, I would love to, but man, that's that's expensive and and uh, right, right, right. So talk to me a little bit about the. Um, the process or the strategy behind raising money to shoot a promo, which you'll use to raise money for the series versus sure. like raising money to shoot a pilot. Cause sure. I'm sure that came up. Um, well, I did a Kickstarter in 2011. If you remember, mm-hmm. um, it was obviously for a different incarnation of the project to do it as a digital ebook prior to doing a series. Uh, but it didn't work out because I underestimated, sorely under, underestimated the um, amount of prep work that needed to be done for a crowdfunding campaign. Mm-hmm. And so I thought to myself, uh, trying to go real big, like let's raise money for a pilot on $500,000, a million dollars, whatever it would be, uh, without having a substantial social media following is just not realistic. It's kind of like a needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm. You might get it, but you can't rely on that. So uh, making a promotional video that we could use to pitch the project to impress studios, um, to impress showrunners, uh, producers is a must because we're not very well connected down in Hollywood. We're not living down there. We don't have producer friends all over the place. So we need to make something that's going to really you know, impress people um, uh, so that we can build those contacts and get meetings. Um, however, we did not have the budget to make the entire four-minute promo trailer uh, as we're calling it a TV series short promo film but yeah it's basically a promo trailer um, so I had enough money to fund um, this shoot uh, which is for the entire trailer but only enough funds to af- afford uh, one minute of special effects from my own pocket uh, which we then thought we will use this to raise the money on Kickstarter. However, I'm not really viewing Kickstarter uh, solely as a way to get funding to make the promo happen. Mm-hmm. I'm also looking at it as a way to build the social media audience. No, because one of the most important things later down the line is is if, if, if let's say we were doing this and we, we did this campaign and it went viral. I have no doubt that producers and companies would come knocking on our door and request meetings because what they care about more than a cool idea, fresh this or that, the other, they want something that has a built-in audience. Mm-hmm. Kind of like if you had caught the short concept film Sundays. Uh, by, and, uh, I'm sorry. sorry. Don't call me I'm all I'm trying to call me on FaceTime, not now. Um, the phone is blowing that's, up. That's Hollywood calling you, Dai. They already yeah. heard about it. <laughs> Yay, good timing. Um, no? Okay. Uh, I'm, let me, let me, don't call me now. Good <laughs> job. I'm still on the call. Can I call you back, please? We're on the call now. I know. I'll be leaving in a little bit. I just want you to be able to get a hold of Ammo. Okay. I can't. Now, after, please. How long you think? I don't know. (laughs) No. It's not. all I'm telling you. Okay. I'll call after, please. Sorry. Okay. Sorry, you guys are You know that's going in the show, right? (laughs) (laughs) I can't talk now, Mom. I'm on a podcast. Yeah, that's funny. Anyways, um, uh, my, um, I'm a Syrian, and we have a, a, a big group of Assyrians in the Central Valley in Modesto, Turlock, in California. And um, a family member of mine, my, my dad's uncle, works at the station, gives us time, and they were showing the, the trailer, and they want me to call in to answer <laughs> questions uh, in Assyrian, you know, to viewers and everything. Who, so, who was and, that? Was that a friend, a girlfriend, a relative, or what? That's my mom. <laughs> it was your mom. I was totally joking. That is so awesome. That she was like, so freaking awesome. your uncle is calling. He wants to know when you're going to be done. I'm like, not now. I'm still in the middle of the call. Well, it's kind of rude. You're making him wait. I'm like, no. Nah. You know, anyways. Uh, okay. It's right out of a Simpson episode. All right. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I forgot. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> you were talking about Kickstarter, building a social media campaign. Yes. And so, so I, um, like Sundays, uh, which, which went viral. And apparently there was a bidding war between three Hollywood companies five days after they hosted it. And, of course, previous to that, they had done a $50,000 Kickstarter campaign to make it. Um, but, yeah, three companies had come and Warner Brothers won out. And they're producing it and developing it as a feature film uh, with the, d- the director of the promo to direct it as well. A similar thing with uh, the Leviathan, if you saw that, about a bunch of ships chasing a, a flying 
science fiction whale up in the sky in some foreign planet, uh, some extraterrestrial planet. Oh, that a that million. Sorry, I say I haven't heard of that one. You got to check it out. The, the Leviathan, the most mind blowing visual effects you've ever seen. I'm still not a story there. And I can also circle back to that, which is I find that a lot of concept science fiction concept uh, promo pitches don't really have a clear story. And I want to do that with art. I want to present not only great visuals, but a, a very compelling and clearly presented uh, story. Mm-hmm. But anyways, uh, building the audience is very important because if we were to come to whoever in Hollywood and say, look at this amazing promo, wonderful effects, great story, and they were to say – does anyone follow it? Do you have uh, people on Facebook, Kickstarter, whatever? Oh, a couple people. Well, we're not interested, no matter how cool the story is, because we want to know that it's a tried and true concept that people are following and are willing to pay for to watch. Another example would be Kung Fury, you know? Yeah. Uh, raised $600 million and within days of uh, posting it, you know, producers, Hollywood Wait, called. They raised 600, you mean 600000 They raised 600000 of a $200,000 uh, goal uh, right. on Kickstarter, which was mind blowing because the guy had no following and was completely unknown. Um, and um, and it actually they raised the full amount within 24 hours of posting. Wow! Because the guy who plays Thor is a bodybuilder with a substantial Facebook following. Right. One of his followers posted it on Reddit, and then it exploded. Wow! Yeah. So if we were to have that, that would really do it. But um, that's not happening. Obviously, it doesn't happen in most cases. That's, that's a real tough thing to achieve. Right. But if we can use Kickstarter to build the audience, Facebook to build the audience, Twitter to build the audience, then that is going to go a long way in convincing uh, whoever might want to pick us up. Yeah. But we also did some, uh, I think, some different ways of using Kickstarter. Yes. To, to launch the campaign. So what I did is I discussed with a dog, and I, I do a lot of different creative parties at my house. Yes, yes. Francisco. So yes. what I decided to do was obviously get it out to my social network and friends and stuff and said, I'm going to do a Kickstarter kickoff party for Sky City High. So we, we built the model of the actual city, and we had that as a silent auction. Um, obviously really good. We had a special drink that we created for the party. Um, we had lots of, you know, I, I put up lots of decorations plus my house is full of science fiction. So that helps as well. And, and Tom, Tom throws killer parties. So he <laughs> yeah, so I utilize that. So it really, what I would say to people that are trying to, to launch something is do something unique and different to kick it off. Don't just rely on the Kickstarter and your promo video and stuff like that. To yep. get things going, you know, try to try to engage people and make them feel special, which they are, because if they're going to give to your campaign, you know, you want to treat them special. And it's not just about giving certain pledge gifts and stuff like that. So we had this party, and then I had a Dodd call in from Prague to San Francisco. We had a yeah, we'll, screen we'll and allowed people to ask questions <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. 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 What were you saying, Dodd? We'll keep at four o'clock in the morning. Oh, yeah, because the party was between 3 to 10, and I'm nine hours ahead, so I had to wake up at 4 in the morning. But it's okay. Sacrifice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing we also did, and I know other people have done similar things. Uh, Dodd and I, would, we created some little videos that could be put up on Facebook. Oh, yeah. I've seen those. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was another thing to keep interest going. And we're doing. We're going to throw up another one because we, we were – luckily, we surpassed our first – goal and within what four or five days it died yeah and so and now we're working towards the next goal actually actually that video uh, tom's talking about i just posted today which one uh the one where uh i'm in front of Prague castle and then i have the visual effects artist and the composer speaking about why we need to meet our stretch goals and then something magical happens behind me at the end cool how yeah so yeah, people want to, you know, jump on to we still have like I think 12 more days on our Kickstarter if they yep. want to, you know, jump on and go to Sky City Haya and support the project and see what it's all about. That would be great. Yep. Um well, so let's say, you know, by the time people hear this you you would have raised the money, you would have started the process. Um what is your like like what's the next step? Like once it's done you are going to go down to hollywood and pitch it do you already have people in mind like what's that process going to look like do you know yet uh 
that 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 is a more murky process. Uh, we're gonna use the money to finish the four minute promo, all the special effects, the music, the sound mixing, uh, and get that up and and post it up on YouTube, Vimeo. And I have a friend who works in production finance at uh, MGM. Uh, I don't know if he can get me a meeting or not, but uh, that's one possibility. Um, and uh, Tom knows a few people as well uh, through the science fiction community. But for the most part, uh, we are not very well connected and we don't have a clear uh, roadmap for that just yet. We have ideas about going to festivals where they do pitches. Mm-hmm. You know, they bring a bunch of people, you pay, you go pitch. Right. Um, uh, also obviously it's, it would be the dream to post it up and have it have such a great reception that people come knocking on your door, but obviously you can't rely on that. Um, so the general, uh, philosophy is make this thing super unique, very impressive, a compelling story and hope that, uh, when you're trying to get meetings and get agency representation, because I believe that, uh, we can't really pitch the show to networks without a, a professional experienced showrunner or at least a creative agency that represents us. Hmm. So this pitch promo is also for that, to try to get representation, uh, someone who actually believes in the possibility of getting this picked up uh, enough to represent us. Got it. And we're also looking at, because uh, a, uh, a lot of things have changed in, in uh, how you can do this, because uh, some of the uh, places that we're also looking into, and I'm I'm working on doing research and also contacting folks, is uh, is places like Amazon, and yeah. Netflix, and all these other avenues, you know, or smaller, you know, cable companies like USA and stuff like that that are willing to take chances on uh, particular projects like this. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I don't think uh, uh, an original science fiction, a TV series from an unknown entity, is the most um, uh, bankable prospect, at least as far as um, uh, Hollywood is concerned. So I think it's going to be a steeper uphill uh, climb than if it were a comedy or a drama or something like that. Sure, sure. But we're also looking at international as well, and uh, Adad has some contacts. I do. That's, that's true. In, in, in Prague here and in Europe, about possible people that we can uh, meet at uh, festivals such as Berlinale or uh, Scandinavian uh, producers. Uh, but actually, Tom mentioned something that I think is a major selling point in this, and that is recently uh, Hollywood has noticed that their international box office has surpassed the domestic one. Oh, sure. Because infrastructure for uh, uh, submitting and and, um, uh, and and getting films out to cinemas, uh, the structure has become more robust. The network is more robust. And I think that, what, 20 years ago, they used to release uh, the foreign distribution a few weeks or a few months after the domestic one. Now it's almost simultaneous for most yeah. big blockbusters. And, and yeah, the, 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 the foreign box office, I think, for example, for Jurassic World is – you know, almost a billion foreign, and then six hundred million domestic. That's that's almost a double. Yeah. So this project is so international because it features people from almost every continent on Earth, and uh, there are main characters that are American, but not exclusively. And I feel that um, science fiction is something that everyone can enjoy. Uh, it's uh, it's it, it takes you away from you know your everyday problems. However, this one is going to also uh, uh, face the viewer with you know common human problems, but in a future setting that's very multicultural. So I'm hoping that the the excitement of uh, a larger world, an imaginary world, but one that reflects people from all across the planet, will be something that will make people go, "Huh, that's interesting, kind of unusual." But I'm curious enough to take take a look at it, and it won't. Uh, be interesting to just one section of the human population. So hopefully that'll be something that people will will think and go. This is something that can spread globally equally in all parts, and maybe that'll be um, make it more bankable. Yeah, yeah, and also the series has, uh, you know, it's it has the tie-in with the climate change, mm-hmm. and yep. I think that's a really uh, a friend of mine actually knows Al Gore, and they talk about climate change all the time. So it's like. Uh, so I've actually put it out to them. So <laughs> I'm trying to trying to get Al Gore involved. Yeah. <laughs> so you never know. You never know. You you know, ask people and see what they say. That's that's how I approach things. Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, it, it's it's a very timely concept because it's part of the public discourse right now. It's not the reason I put it in the project, but it happens to be a a benefit that that it's part of the common political uh, public discourse now. So you know, hopefully that's another another hook. 
Well, as as you guys progress, I would love to have you guys back on. As you, particularly after you go through the process of, you know, pitching it to uh, Hollywood or wherever, and seeing where that goes, because I think that's you know something that a lot of people you know listening would be interested in hearing and mm-hmm. and seeing you know where this takes you on your journey. You know, I'm I'm as curious as everyone else is to find out myself. <laughs> yeah. That's gonna be that's gonna be one he- hell of a journey. So let's see. No, I think there's there's so many different ways, and and I listen to a lot of different podcasts and stuff. One of my favorites is called The Movie Crypt. Oh, um, yeah, you should check it out. It's all about inside uh, Hollywood. It's not about so much about the guys that are on it are horror filmmakers. It's Adam Green and and uh, Joe Lynch, mm-hmm. and but they they get very insightful people on their show. It's a radio podcast. And um, I think it's on Geek Nation, but anyway, it's it's uh, it's it's wonderful. It's like they just sit down and talk with filmmakers, uh, similar to what you're doing, uh, Ron, and they just let the the conversation go, and it's it's amazing. They get really big time people, and they always ask how they got their start and how they were able to get a project greenlit, and it's it's amazing how many different roads lead to getting it done there's not one singular way of doing yeah. it sound yeah all right it's made a note to check that out yeah movie crypt the movie crypt yeah the movie crypt. and it's I, I believe it's on geek nation i love that name <laughs> <laughs> awesome well guys oh, another, oh, one yeah. other yeah, other sure. podcast if i could jump in that that's uh it's just getting going and i don't know if you Ron, you probably know, but Dodd definitely knows, but it's called Cinefax Magazine. Oh, yeah. But there's a graphic artist. I think he's up in Seattle, actually. Um, He's doing a podcast called The Optical. The Optical. What's that about? Yeah. I'm sorry? I said, what's that about? Okay, about what they do is they're going through each of the Cinefax magazines from the very beginning. And unless a big movie is coming out, like Jurassic Park, they did one on the new Jurassic Park, but also the old Jurassic Park. But they, they go through and they get people that worked on the movies, and they tell their horror stories. They tell what was great about it. They talk about everything. Most of it's more effects-related, mm-hmm. but it's a really interesting podcast. And uh, they just started. I think they've only done about 12 or 15 or so. But uh, uh, it's really, really well done. That's another one that I would, I would recommend people checking out. Wow. Cool. Yeah. A very informative discussion. Yeah. <laughs> All right, fellas. Um, All right. Thanks, Ron. Yeah, we will be um, keeping an eye on what you guys do. And I appreciate you taking the time. Thank yeah, you very you much for having us. Give me a shout. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, actually, I was going to say that because um, I still have clients down there every now and then. So... And I have family in, the, in that area, so I would definitely nice. have to come by and check out your sci-fi collection next time I'm down there. Oh yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd be, you would love it. And you can see my special rocket that's in the back. It's about 18 feet tall. <laughs> awesome, sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Ron, thank you so much for having us on, giving us the chance to discuss this. It was it was great. Yeah, thank you guys. <laughs>